You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It's been a rather exciting month on the Red Planet on Mars with the Ingenuity helicopter taking its first few flights. Uh, flying uh, not that far, but maybe the length of a football field uh, or so before returning to where it took off. It's the first time there's ever been a powered takeoff flight and landing on Mars. Of course, the rover's perseverance included. The, the uh, rover that landed with Ingenuity on board came down on a jetpack. It's the first time something's taken off, flown and then landed again. And who knows what we'll see in the future, not only on Mars, but maybe in uh, the end of this decade, perhaps, uh, we'll have the launch of the Dragonfly mission to Titan, which will be able to fly around uh, that largest moon of Saturn. But this month, I don't want to talk about Titan or Mars. I want to look the other way. I want to look in towards the sun and also a little bit back in time. Back to one of the exciting stories from last year. Now, you may recall that in September of last year, the world was surprised and uh, shocked by the announcement that there was the discovery, the detection of a rare gas called phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, with prospects that maybe, perhaps, this is an indication that there could be microbial life in the atmosphere of Venus, or it could be something else entirely. Well, it's been uh, over six months now. I thought it was time to look back at this story and see what the status of the discovery is because things have been uh, moving apace. So this month, I thought I'd speak to Professor Jane Greaves, who is the lead author on the initial study and has been leading the team that's been uh, following the science as they try and uh, understand what this discovery could mean for the atmosphere of Venus. Now, I began by asking Jane to remind us what happened back in September. So it was very unexpected. So phosphine is a simple molecule with a phosphorus atom and three hydrogen atoms. And on Earth, um, it's produced um, industrially or by some kinds of um, microorganisms, um, microbes living in swamps and places like that. And we actually went out and looked for it in Venus because it's been suggested that the clouds of Venus um, are some kind of um, cool habitat, so nowhere near the scorching surface, but a possibility of kind of flying microbes in the clouds of Venus. And I came up with this idea thinking, oh, you know, we'll get some kind of limit. It'll be mildly interesting to a couple of other astrobiologists somewhere in the world. And then we were just blown away when we actually detected the gas. So that's what all the excitement was about. And um, we worked very hard to think about um, other ways on this planet completely different to our own that might make phosphine. So we're not in any way saying it was a life detection on Venus, but that is still one of the possibilities. And I think one of the things that was certainly apparent then, and I don't think anyone has uh, come up with a counter argument to that I'm aware, is that there's there's no known kind of natural non-biological process that um, with our understanding of the chemistry of Venus's atmosphere that can explain this amount of phosphine. It's, it's a chemical imbalance in the atmosphere, essentially, isn't it? Yes. So one of the reviewers of our work said saying Venus wouldn't make phosphine is like saying rocks fall under gravity. Um, 
So there isn't a whole load of free hydrogen floating around in Venus atmosphere, the same as there isn't in Earth's atmosphere. Um, so you don't get this molecule PH3, a phosphorus atom and three hydrogen atoms. So there are some sort of out of equilibrium situations on the Earth that could briefly make phosphine. Say a volcanic plume, it's thought that, um, I guess that's not very easy to measure. You might send a drone in or something briefly, um, but it's thought you could make phosphine gas in a volcanic plume and um, Venus is pretty volcanic. Um, so we have been looking really hard at some of these other possibilities, but none of them seem to be really productive enough, which is why um, the life option remains a possibility, although um, there hadn't been a lot of work done on this. And like the idea of flying life in these crazy hyperacidic clouds of Venus also seems really hard to explain. Because that's the, I mean, when we talk about flying life, this suggestion of, of uh, that's been around for a, a long time, actually for decades of, of the, uh, you mentioned this, this uh, these cloud decks of Venus. So they're they're about 50 or so kilometers altitude above the surface. They're at roughly earth surface temperature. They're at roughly earth surface pressure. So you wouldn't need a pressure suit to go there. You would need though some protection against the, um, well, you need a little bit of an oxygen supply for breathing, I guess. And you need a little bit of protection from the very, very acidic clouds, which are in terms of the, the concentration of, uh, of acid, billions of times more acid there than there is uh, here on the earth. Uh, it's yes, it's incredibly acidic. So it's um, where there are liquid droplets, you're more thinking of um, a little bit of water dissolved in sulfuric acid rather than the situation you might have in your lab class of dissolving a tiny bit of sulfuric acid in some water. Yeah. So any microbes that we took from Earth and, you know, took a teaspoon of microbes there and, and left it out on our gondola of our balloon that we'd gone and floated around the atmosphere of Venus in would just be desiccated. I mean, they'd be dissolved immediately. Yes, I think so. So um, planetary protection, which is a big issue for Mars, making sure we don't send some microbes on a rover, is thought to be much less of an issue on Venus, because even if you didn't thoroughly clean your um, space vehicles the way they actually do at the space agencies, we think anything um, terrestrial would just, you know, die immediately encountered this acid environment. So, so Venus is sort of self-sterilizing in that, in that sense. It just sterilizes anything you take there, um, which does lead to this idea that there being life there seems, well, I think you describe it as preposterous um, in, in, some, in some respects, and yet still is a, is a possibility, because there are some ideas of how life might, you know, some concepts of you could imagine ways in that microbes could be floating around, right? Yes, that's right. So we can look at some um, organisms in really hostile environments on the Earth. So there's a place called, um, and I haven't been there, so I think this is the right name, the Dalal Hot Springs in Ethiopia, which not just are like almost boiling water coming out of the ground, but also incredibly acidic. And they found microorganisms there, even though the acid is a few percent in the water. So um, if you remember your chemistry or you're doing chemistry in school, uh, if you think of the pH scale for acids, it goes down to about one. Well, these hot springs go down to about zero and yet there are very um, resistant organisms in there. Um, one of the interesting things my colleague um, Paul Rimmer at Cambridge University has just done um, 
is a new study of what the acid balance is in Venus clouds. And it's thought that um, pHs of zero or one might actually be more viable. Uh, and this is better than we thought before because the acid was so bad, you had to go into a negative part of the pH scale, which I don't think anybody does in school. So if nothing else, our work has um, spurred some new thoughts about what the environment in the clouds of Venus is actually like. Since September, since you published the paper in September, um, one of the purposes of publishing papers is A, you go through what's called a peer review process where peers, signed, other scientists look at it and say, does this sound like a, a, a publishable thing? Is this a valid, valid scientific study? And obviously went through that process and was published. That's, that's what happened in, in September. But the other point is to, to go out to the rest of the scientific community and say, what, you, know, you know, comment on this, tell us, tell us what you think. Um, and that's certainly something that, is, that has happened. And there was some, uh, some stuff that was uh, uh, people behaving in, in ways that are probably non-scientific. And that was um, largely quashed, I think. Um, or it, it seemed like it for, from my point of view, which is it's bad that it happened, but it's good that it was, it was quashed. Uh, but people did come up with, you know, completely justifiably with questions about the, about the study. So what kind of things have you had to... Um, re-look at as people have said ah but what about this and what about that and so on yeah so to deal with um one of the things you said there first um you talked about people um making criticisms that weren't very scientific we did get some people saying oh you shouldn't have published something that even mentions the possibility of life you know it's too speculative and people will misinterpret um, but we thought we really had a bit of a responsibility. I mean, it's um, it's public money that pays for telescopes at the end of the day. It's, you know, your and my tax money to a large extent. So it's not like we could have hidden this data. So we did our best to get it across with all the, um, the caveats. But so I, I'm pretty happy we did that right. And I think also with the publication, um, we're um, my team believes in open science and reproducible science. So, for example, we have computer scripts that take the telescope data um, and these computer codes um, run through the data and give you the final result that makes the um, diagrams in the publication. And we um, put those computer scripts out there so somebody else with um, um, well, pretty much any computer setup could install the software, run our scripts and um, reproduce our results. And in a way that led to um, some quite quick um, pushback on us. Um, and I think the thing that's a pity here is that people didn't just email us. There were a small number of genuine mistakes in the ALMA data processing. Um, so the phosphine spectra we took with the ALMA network of telescopes, they'd never really pushed the network to such depth on a bright planet before. And so there were about three separate little things that they normally do automatically in an early stage of the data processing and that you never really see. And those weren't correct for the Venus situation. So we were actually really glad that people found the first of those and then the observatory found the two other ones. But you know, if people had let us know with an email or a phone call or something and said, we think you've done something a bit wrong here, but let's look at it together, that would have been great. Um, and so you know, the sort of review by the community of um, people putting out papers going, <laughs> Greaves team didn't know what they were doing. That was, that was a bit of a painful part of the scientific process, but we have been through that and um, worked through all these corrections and we've still got phosphine in the data. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. So that's one aspect of is the is the detection you know real is the detection valid and and you said you, you 
that seems to be the uh, seems to be the case. Um, the other is then, of course, the interpretation of saying, yes, there was this signal at this frequency, which is what it is. Is that actually phosphine? And that's another thing that that is, again, it's a, a valid question of is it um, is it actually phosphine? And there's been uh, the big uh, there's a big issue of confusion with other molecules um, or a risk of confusion with other molecules. So what's the what's the status there? Yeah, so we would love to get an observation at another frequency because these come at like regular intervals in frequency. But unfortunately, the next um, frequencies we could observe um, are all blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. So we can't do those. So we're stuck with this one frequency. Um, so we thought about this very carefully at the time back in September. And indeed, this was a suggestion by somebody else, something we'd slightly missed that there is um, a not particularly major transition, um, like a quantum transition of the molecule sulfur dioxide, SO2, and that's pretty close to the frequency of the phosphine one. And sulfur dioxide is known to be very abundant in Venus atmosphere. So you could imagine a scenario um, where sulfur dioxide, which is really variable, um, you know, the amount of it in Venus atmosphere goes up and down for reasons that are not well understood. If there'd been a lot of it about at the time, um, it maybe could have mimicked a signal that we thought was phosphine. Um, but we are fortunately able to um, show that that's not the case. So at both the telescopes, in fact, the Discovery Telescope, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, and the ALMA Network of Telescopes in Chile, from both of those, we've got other data on sulfur dioxide, either taken at the same time or very close in time. And so we can say there wasn't some crazy amount of sulfur dioxide that would have um, been able to mimic the whole of the phosphine line. I hope that makes some sense. It's a bit difficult to explain without waving your hands around. <laughs> so I guess what, yeah, so the, the hypothesis is that there could have been, I don't know, a, a plume of sulfur dioxide that just at that, at that time, which would have mimicked this signal, but but actually you can rule that out because it would have had other signals in other bits of data which don't don't exist they're not there Yes, that's right. I mean, it, it would have to um, affect the whole planet. So some massive plume that drifted around in the upper atmosphere, or even just things like the effect of sunlight. Um, there are chemical cycles in Venus clouds. So, you know, kind of natural rise and fall of sulfur dioxide and of some other molecules like water, for example. So as well as um, looking at, at, at data and, and thinking of, um, you know, ways of ruling out other possibilities and, uh, and so on, there's also the possibility of, of going back in time, not literally, but looking at previous uh, measurements. So I know you did a bit of work in, in looking back in archival data of ground-based telescopes from the last few years um, in, in other wavelengths and so on. And that was, um, did anything come out of that of looking at, you know, did anyone happen to be looking at Venus at the right frequencies um, in the last few years? Yes. So um, several people found they had data, um, which I, you know, partially published or um, were still working on, which coincidentally included some much higher frequency transitions of phosphine. And those are in the infrared um, and they don't see um, phosphine absorption by the gas in their spectra. Uh, but the issues there are, um, it essentially is a minor tracer of gas that's higher up than the clouds, which is the layer of most interest to me. 
So um, it might not sound much of a difference, but the bit at say 55 kilometers above the surface, this is really high up stuff. Um, that is where we think things are temperate, um, uh, you know, nice temperature and everything. You get up to 60 kilometers, um, that's where the infrared observations trace, which is very interesting scientifically, but less so astrobiologically because it's it's quite a bit colder up there. Um, and, you know, anything, um, any life form might probably freeze, but still it's very much a part of the picture of how phosphine from any source behaves in, as it gets into the atmosphere. Well, because we know that as phosphine rises up, it gets broken out, broken down by sunlight and, and other processes, right? So as you go higher up, it should, it should all, not quite evaporate but it sure disappear um pretty quickly right and if, if you think about phosphine rising i guess it's a light gas isn't it does it rise up through the atmosphere and yeah it's more kind of carried up um in air currents i think because it's it's not a very light gas because the phosphorus atom itself mm, is, is quite heavy um but yeah, it certainly would circulate upwards. But because we know so little actually about the physics of Venus upper atmosphere, um, we, we're not really certain what the, the timescales are there, um, which members of my team um, are working on. So if you think, hey, how could we measure this? The best way is probably space probes. Um, but there've been you know, a handful of those that have actually taken measurements as they descended through the atmosphere of Venus. So you tend to be relying on things like wind measurements um, taken by a space probe in about the 1980 era, um, which, you know, was heroically good technology and really good results. But you've got, you know, a couple of points in time from that kind of data. But those space probes have also had some really interesting data that no one had really looked at in this way before. So when people who'd worked on some of these probes, so Pioneer Venus, I know was one of them, um, and, and various other Venus multi-probe missions from the, the late 70s and, and, and early 80s. Um, they, uh, there is data from those, and some of the people involved in that are still, still around and could look at it. And they saw your result, um, the result of your, you and your team, uh, and said, um, actually, I, I wonder whether there was anything in our data. And they've, they've gone and looked, haven't they? What have they found? Yeah, this is amazing. This um, was very unexpected to me. So Pioneer Venus um, descended through the clouds in 1978 and had an instrument called a mass spectrometer. So it doesn't look at light. It actually measures the mass of atoms and molecules um, through a sort of chamber in the instrument. And um, a team led by Rakesh Mogul in the United States looked at this data um, wondering what else might be there and realized that some of the things where the instrument gave a low count rate were probably detections of minor gases, um, but that had never really been thought about um, in the excitement about, you know, the gases that were really strongly detected back then. Uh, so he um, brought in a guy called, I think, Richard Hodges, who was on the original 1978 instrument team. So they really understand what they're doing. And they looked at these faint signals and amongst some other, um, you know, possible um, carbon compounds, they also found a signal of phosphine. And that is from the clouds. They're pretty sure it's phosphine, not something else. It's well detected. The signals are, although it's small, it's at a level about five times just the random um, counts by the instrument. So it's a five sigma detection. And most importantly, we know where the probe was at the time where it's taking the measurements um, in its descent. And so that's from about, I think they said 51 to 58 kilometers. 
is where they detected phosphine at those altitudes you really are in the clouds so so this is you know an amazing um complementary piece of work one thing I'm actually going to be interested in, they're not blocked by the Earth's atmosphere, of course. So you can look for all these things. And you say mass spectrometers don't look at light, they look at it in other ways. But you can do things there that you simply couldn't do um, for, from here on Earth. So what are the thoughts on doing that again and going back and doing some of these things on Venus with modern technology, not 1970s and 80s technology? Yeah, there's been a lot of excitement building about sending um, quite major missions to Venus. So I'm also, of course, very excited about the missions on Mars, um, the two rovers that are there at the moment, um, plans from China, the little helicopter. It's all very exciting. Uh, but Venus is exciting as well because Venus is a bit of a sister planet to our own that took a different path, a very different path in terms of climate. Um, resulting in the the incredible heat at the surface and the very high clouds and so on. So um, sending modern technology to understand how a planet pretty much of the same, you know, not very different illumination by the sun and the same gravity and everything, how it could go so bad has been an interest to um, space agencies for a while. So they're looking longer term, maybe in a decade of some really amazing missions, you know, like fly a dirigible in the clouds for months or something. That would be incredible. But because of the, well, not just because of our discovery, I mean, other people were excited as well. Some of even the smaller private space agencies are thinking maybe you could send something back to Venus, a small probe like the Pioneer Venus one, but with much more um, modern technology. So you could get signal back much better. You could um, sample um, what's in the clouds much better, even with something, um, you know, a kind of, um, couple of kilograms of payload, something you could hold in your hands could these days do really well. Yeah, and it's, I mean, a lot of the, the advances in, in satellite and spacecraft technology, as you say, mean that you can do amazing things with tiny, tiny technology. Things like the, um, I mean, it was, it was a much larger scale mission, but the Philae lander on Rosetta, for example, had a mass spectrum, did amazing things with a tiny payload um, that went there. So th there are a really interesting, uh, really interesting prospects there. What kind of time scale do you think for those smaller missions are we looking at? Well, I've seen something um, on um, online sources talking to the Rocket Labs um, space launch company, for example. They launch um, from New Zealand uh, and they mostly do low Earth orbit launching interesting small satellites and so on. Um, but they've declared an interest in Venus, which I think they've had building for a while. And they're talking about there being a, a really good um, suitable point where you can launch from Earth towards Venus sometime in the spring of 2023. So that's only like two years from now. You know, I, I imagine they're working frantically in um, a, a back lab somewhere thinking about what kind of instrumentation could go on one of their rockets and carry a small payload to Venus. Exciting stuff. Uh, in the more immediate future, um, we don't have to go into space. We do have telescopes on Earth that can look at it. So is, are there plans to, you know, to confirm the results again with telescopes here to look at it um, at, at a third time point, uh, that kind of thing? Yes, we're um, obviously struggling like everybody with the COVID situation. So um, ALMA is back up and running. Um, situation in Chile has been very worrying for the staff there, um, but they are able to operate the network of um, telescopes. They took it out of a mothballed kind of state after a year and it's incredibly 
um, complex technology spread over tens of kilometers on a high plateau in Chile, but they've got everything working again and are taking science data for, a, um, for people who've been waiting that year for their project. So we're really hopeful um, that when the pressure on getting those other results um, dies back a bit, perhaps um, we or someone might be able to get some more data related to phosphine. And also the Discovery Telescope, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, that's a very um, mature facility. Um, UK was involved in building it back in the 1980s and it's developed its technology all along. And there at the point they can observe remotely so people don't need to drive up this extinct volcano in Hawaii and sit there in 60% oxygen all night. You could just sit at sea level in a keyboard and um, and um, operate the telescope. So we're hopeful to um, get some more data from there as well. So whether it's observations from telescopes or maybe even spacecraft, large or small, flying towards Venus, who knows what the next few years will hold in terms of understanding this discovery further. Quite an exciting time and certainly something to keep track of. Well, my thanks to Jane for joining us. That's it for this month. Don't forget, you can listen to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk or you can search for us on Spotify. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>